It is a great uh, Sunday to be at Redemption. If you are new with us or you're a guest with us today, you picked a really good Sunday to be here. We're starting this new series. It's just three weeks long, and what we're calling it is our vision series. We're looking at gospel, family, and mission. And what we're trying to do, what we're praying, is that we would be re-centered, refocused, that we would be reminded of what God's done for us, what he has for us, what he's called us to, and, and what that looks like. Here, here's the thing. As we get into this three-week series and we start today, I, I really believe it, I'm not just saying it, that this has the potential to be the most important series that we've done up until now in the life of our church that we would have the opportunity to really be used by God in an interesting and unique way, in a powerful way, here inside the church and also in the community that God has placed us in. God's shown us a ton of grace over the past several months as a young church. Even the fact that we get to meet in here this morning is, is God's grace toward us. But as we move forward, even as a young church, I think one of my biggest fears as, as a pastor in my own life and also for our church is that we might become a little bit too comfortable and maybe even complacent. And I don't mean this in a, in a mean way. I don't mean that I don't want you to be comfortable. I want you to feel at home. I want you to absolutely be comfortable. But what I mean is this, is that sometimes we can get in our mind, okay, I've got church on Sunday that I come to and I gather with everybody and I really, really like that. And I've got life group during the week and I would rather just keep it at that because that's what I know and that's what's comfortable and, and that's, that's really about as, about as far as I want to go. And I think my biggest fear is that we would stay in that place. That we would stay in a place where we, even without maybe knowing it, become insular. And so my prayer over the past several weeks is I've been praying that, that God would excite us. That God would give us a hunger for Him. That we would be hungry for the Holy Spirit to actually be present and to move in our lives, in our church, and throughout our community that we would literally plead and petition for the Holy Spirit to show up and to move in big ways. Ways that only he can do. Ways that we can't take credit for because it's just too amazing. That's my prayer, and I don't believe I've ever been more excited or even expectant about the Holy Spirit actually doing this and showing up. And so for our church family, and if you're a guest here today, you are welcome here, and we love it that you're here. If you're just visiting today and you're checking out what church is all about, somebody invited you, you came off the street, we love it that you are here. As a church family today, we go through this series for the next three weeks. I pray that we would all hunger for God more. I pray that we would pray humbly that the Holy Spirit would move throughout our church, throughout our lives, and out into community. And so today, we're going to jump into the first in uh, this three-week series, and we're going to look at gospel, and we're going to look at what a gospel life looks like. Uh, let me ask this. Do we have any—would anybody say that they're a foodie in here? Don't be—there we go. Don't be shy. I see the timid hand. It's like, I don't know. Somebody going to judge me? I would say most of us have probably been to some restaurant that claimed something, right? Like maybe you've been to a restaurant that claimed to be the best at something or have the best something. Like we've got the best steak. We've got the best seafood. Or we've got the best burger. Or maybe they just claim to be really good at something. We've got the best customer service. We've got the best view, whatever it may be. When Laura and I moved here to Seattle about three years ago, we moved from South Carolina, and we uh, really fell in love with Mexican food in South Carolina. And there were a ton of Mexican restaurants, and they were really good. And so when we moved up here, we started looking around for good Mexican restaurants. And there was one down the street from us really close. It claimed to have some of the best and most authentic Mexican food in Seattle. And so I was stoked. I was like, let's do this. And so we show up, 
maybe one of the first red flags is that we were the only people who decided to show up that night. But we show up, and here's the deal. As we experience this place that claimed to have the best and most authentic Mexican food, here's the deal. It didn't. It wasn't good. And so we were disappointed. We were disappointed because they didn't live up to their stated values. Now, if they had, I'd have been really excited, and I would have told other people, and I'd have taken other people, but because they didn't, I was disappointed and haven't been back. At Redemption, we have something that we call family traits, and this is really our version of of values. It's how we believe that that we should live in response to the gospel. And we, we would say it like this. It's at the bottom. You can barely see it, but I'll say it. That we would be joyful, relational, grace-filled people. That we would strive to be joyful, relational, grace-filled people here at Redemption. Now, if you're not part of the Redemption Church family, but you would say this morning that you're a, you're a Christian, you have a relationship with Jesus, um, don't disengage. This is for you just as much as it is for our church. If you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, here's what I hope that you see. Maybe you've got a misconception of what Christianity looks like. But what I hope you see today is what a response to the gospel is supposed to look like. What the gospel is really supposed to do within us that we're supposed to live out, that we should live out. And I hope that you also see as you hear this that Jesus wants this and has this for you as well. And I don't think it's by accident that you're here this morning. But let me ask us as a church, how are we doing at living this out? I know we're young, but how are we doing at living this out? Think about it. Joyful, relational, grace-filled people. If we hung a sign out this morning as everybody came in and we said, this place has joyful, relational, grace-filled people, did you experience that this morning? When they left, would they say, yeah, those people were joyful, they were relational, they were grace-filled? If we hung this around our necks and we went through this next week, would the people that you interact with in your neighborhood, at your work, in school, would they interact with you and would they see that it's clear that you are a joyful, relational, grace-filled person? Or would they be really confused by the sign that's hanging around your neck? Every day in every interaction that we have, we are painting a picture of Jesus for others in how we live. Whether we believe it or not, whether we really think how we live matters or not, or it's only affecting us, or nobody else cares, nobody else sees it, every day in every interaction you have, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your children, whether it's with the person at work, whether it's with the person on the bus, in every interaction you are, in the way that you are living, you're, you're painting a picture of Jesus for others. And so what I want us to ask is this. What kind of picture is my life painting? What kind of picture is my life painting of Jesus and the gospel in in how I live? And for us as a church, what kind of picture of Jesus is our church painting? By the way that we live, we will either help make the gospel dull and dismissible or beautiful and non-ignorable. And my prayer is that we help, we don't save anyone, But we help, as Jesus works through us and the Holy Spirit moves through us, we help make the gospel beautiful and not ignorable, not dull and dismissible. And as we think about this, we're going to look at another group of people today. And we're going to see how the gospel interacted with their life and how they embodied this. And as they embodied being joyful, relational, grace-filled people, what happened? Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Here's where we're going to be. I've got the verses up here. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, there's also a Bible in the pew if you want to grab that. But this is the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 42. We're just going to look at six verses together this morning as we think about 
what it means to be joyful, relational, grace-filled people. So let me just read this passage for us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then awe came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meet together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So these were about 3,000 people. And what we see here is that they're learning together, they're praying together, they're going to church together, they're spending time together, they're breaking bread together, they're doing all of these different things together. And the big question is why? What led to this? And so let me just read to you really quickly what happened right before we get this description of how these people were living. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he stands before some people in Jerusalem, and he delivers this message to them. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now when they heard this, here's the response, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And so here's the deal. They heard the gospel. They responded to the gospel. The Holy Spirit filled them, and it dramatically affected and changed the way that they lived. It affected the way that they spent their time. It affected the way that they saw one another and loved one another. It affected their generosity. It affected their graciousness. It affected their joy. It affected every part of them because that's what the gospel does. You can't have a relationship with Jesus and not be changed. Jesus changes everything. He changes our desires. He changes what we love. He changes what we care about. He changes our vision. He changes the way that we see people. And that's what we see here is that these people, when they heard the word and responded to it, they entered into a new family, a new spiritual family. They had a new DNA at their core of what they cared about and how they began living their lives. As 1 Corinthians 5 says, they are a new creation. The old things were gone away. The new had come. They were new. And so they started living in a new way because they were part of a new family. And so one effect that we clearly see here is these people were filled with joy. Let me look at this verse again. It's in 46. It says, They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, and then verse 47, praising God. Now, on the surface, you might say, big deal. Like, why is that a big deal? They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. Like, what does that really say? If they were joyful in such a small thing as literally just eating a meal, 
imagine how joyful they were in the rest of their lives. They found joy in even the smallest things. Are, are we joyful? Are you joyful? Would you say that you're joyful? Would people around you say that you're joyful? Um, would people say that our church is a joyful church? And it, here, here's what's interesting here. Do you notice this? It doesn't say happy. Because here's the thing, we're not always going to be happy. In fact, it can be really disingenuous if we just always try to be happy. Um, because sometimes things are going to happen. Somebody's going to sin against you. You're going to experience loss. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be things happening in your life that you didn't expect, and you're just not going to be happy. And joy is very different from being happy. I mean, imagine how weird it would be if you interacted with me, and you were like, hey, Drew, how's it going today? And I'm just like, it's going fantastic. My life is falling apart at the seams, but man, I am doing great. You'd just be like, whoa, I'm like something's off there. And I think sometimes we misinterpret joy for happiness. And so we think that what joy means is really we just need to put a smile on and act like nothing's wrong. And that's not true at all because there's brokenness. And so we need to be authentic, but we need to understand that joy is not the same thing as happiness. It goes much deeper. Should we have fun? Absolutely. And we do have fun. And I hope you have fun here as a church. We try to do things that are really fun and engaging. We hang out at the park. Um, We do crazy backyard parties. We have fun together because hopefully we like each other and we're connecting with each other. But joy... Joy goes much deeper than just happiness because happiness is about what we feel and it's dependent upon our circumstance. But joy is really about the hope in what we have. Joy is about the hope in what we have and it's something that should not go up and down based on circumstance like happiness does, but it should stay level because of the hope in what we have. And if you are in Christ today, you should be full of joy because the hope that you have in him. And that's what we see in these people. They were filled with joy to the point that they were finding joy in just sharing a meal together. There's this great quote. It's from a guy named A.B. Simpson. He, he founded the Christian Missionary Alliance. He says this, It is his joy that remains in us that makes our joy full. And so what joyfulness really is, is the Holy Spirit within us, filling us. If I'm being honest, this is, this is to myself, so don't throw stones. I'm, I'm saying this is me too. Sometimes I feel like we as Christians, we, we can easily walk around as if we have no hope, as if life is hopeless. We embody Eeyore. Growing up, Eeyore was my favorite character in Winnie the Pooh. And I think it was probably just because I felt sorry for him. Like if you've ever watched Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore is always hanging out by himself on a hill. It looks like the grass hasn't grown there in years. It's dark and nobody's hanging out with him. His head slumped down. He's losing his tail at least once a day. Like, and then as, as anybody comes and interacts with him, what's his favorite line? Thanks for noticing me. That's Eeyore. And sometimes I feel like we as believers who have Christ, who's given us every reason to be joyful because we have everything we need in him, can forget that and we can embody this Eeyore, thanks for noticing me, ho-hum type of attitude instead of realizing the joy that we have in Christ. Do you know joy is mentioned 165 times in the Bible? And here's what's really interesting is that almost half those times it's mentioned by one person, the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if you know too much about the Apostle Paul, but he spent a ton of his life in prison, in a dark, dank, disgusting prison. And he uses the word joy more than anybody else in the Bible. And it's interesting because he's also found saying, I'm joyful. And this is while he's in prison. Like if I was expecting anybody to be Eeyore, it's the Apostle Paul. You're in prison. 
But the thing that he realized is that he had everything that he needed because he had Jesus. And so if you've been feeling joyless, believer, be reminded you have Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you, take you as you are, and give you everything you need in him. And these people realized this, and they embodied it. When I was growing up, one of my best friends, his name was Justin Buckler. We were best friends for years and years and years, and I would love going over to his house because uh, his, his family was amazing. They had this awesome house. Um, they did awesome things. They always had awesome pizza, which I was big into, you know, fourth grade. <laughs> Free pizza. And so always hanging out with Justin, always wanted to go over to his house, always wanted to spend time with his family because it was clear in Justin's life, this dude was joyful. Like he had awesome, legit parents, family. I wanted to be a part of his family. I probably talked to my parents about maybe letting them adopt me a couple times. I don't know, but I loved his family and and how Justin came to school and, and how he went about his day. Like he was joyful. I had another friend though named Robert and I was good friends with Robert too, but Robert, Robert was often upset. Robert was often getting into fights. Robert didn't get along with a lot of the kids in our class Definitely not the same as Justin. And here's the deal. Robert had a lot going on at home. His dad was in prison. Robert had several brothers. His mom wasn't able to spend that much time with Robert. His basic needs were barely met. And it reflected in the way that Robert lived. Here's my question. Are we joyful in a way that correctly represents how great our dad and our brother is? How great our God and Father is? How great Jesus is? Are we repping the family well? Would you be able to tell that we have a great dad? That he's given us grace and he's shown us love and that he provides for us and he cares for us and he meets our needs. That we have an awesome brother who came and he actually laid his life down for us. In the way that we live out our life, does our joy point to a great dad and a loving brother or does it not? The way that we live our life is absolutely painting a picture of Jesus of the gospel, of God, to the people around us. I never, I never had a desire to join Robert's family, but I often had a desire to join Justin's family. And here's the deal. Once again, we don't save anybody, but here's, here's, what, we, here's what we do as a church and as a people. We help point people to a great dad and a great brother. And so if we walk around joyless, why would anyone want to be a part of our family? Are we joyful? Are we joyful people because of the hope that we have within us. So not only were these people joyful, but they were also um, relational, incredibly relational. Look at verse 44 here. Now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They spent a lot of time together. They were connected. They were living life together. How relational are you? How relational are we as a church? The two greatest commandments, what are they? Love God and love people. And here's some news. You cannot do either of those things outside of relationships. You cannot love God and you cannot love people outside of relationships. If we're going to define relationships here, let's define it like this. Relationships are not exactly the same as being relational. You may have relationships, but it does not necessarily mean that you're relational because here's what relational looks like. It means that you are someone who is able to listen to others, to care for others, to invest in others, to encourage others in those relationships just as they do the same for you. It's a very active role to be relational, not just to have relationships. And so how relational are we? Are we engaging with one another on a real level that shows that we care? 
for too long, I usually go around, and, and to be honest, it's my own insecurity. I'll usually just ask people this question if I interact with you. And if, and if I do, and this is all I ask you, call me out because I need it. But I'll just say, hey, how are you? And, and what I've been challenged by lately, just God's challenged me. As I've been praying through this, God's challenged me to ask better questions. How are you doing with Jesus? How's your marriage? And how's your work going? I, I, know that, I know that this was coming up and you had this going on in your life. How's that going? Because that shows that we care. And so how are we engaging with each other? And this happens inside, this needs to happen inside of the church and outside of the church. This is why we love life groups. If you're in a life group, that is awesome. We are so excited for you. If you're not, we would love to get you in a life group. But even in life groups, think about this. As we connect in life groups, how do we receive people? How do we receive new people that come into the life groups? How do we interact with one another? Um, How do we do that? Is it loving? Is it engaging? Is it relational? Is it clear that we care? And then outside the church, how do we engage with our neighbors, with our classmates, with people that we work with? Is it clear that we care? Would we say that we're relational? When someone walks in here, would it be clear? And if we want to start really small, here's what I believe it starts with, especially as we talk about this in a church family sense. I think sometimes it just starts with walking across the room. There's a a great book by um, Bill Hybels. It's called Just Walk Across the Room. And it's about how this simple step of walking across and personally engaging with someone, the Holy Spirit can take that and use that in their life. Here's what else just walking across the room and engaging with someone, even though it may seem like a very small thing, here's what it does. It answers one of our biggest questions that we have and we ask all the time, and I guarantee some of you are asking it today, and it's, does anyone care about me? Does anyone care that I'm here? And I would hope that as a church, we would say, yes, it matters. And I'm going to walk across the room, and I'm going to engage with you. You're not going to be alone. I'm not just going to leave you over there in the corner. But because Jesus has engaged with me, and I have a relationship with him, I want to engage with you. And through doing that, we have the opportunity to share the joy that we have within us. Are we relational? Are we spending time with people? My prayer is that no one would ever feel like an outsider here at Redemption. That's my prayer for our church. No one, no matter how you come in, no matter what you come in with, that you would never feel like an outsider, that you would feel at home, that you would feel welcomed, that out of a response to the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, that we would show love and pursue others. Are we spending time with people and can they tell that we care? So they were joyful, they were relational, they were also grace-filled. Let's read this uh, verse 45. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Are we a grace-filled people? The gospel affected these people so much that they sold what I'm sure some of them needed to meet the greater needs of other people who had less. This looks very odd in our culture. It looks very odd in general that somebody would give up what they have to meet someone else's need. Because you notice what it doesn't say here? It doesn't say, and they held court to see if that person deserved to have their need met. And then they decided if they were going to sell what they had and give it to that person. Instead, they just said, hey, people have needs. We're going to sell our stuff. We're going to meet those needs. They were filled with grace because they had been shown so much grace. Sometimes I think we're fearful of showing too much grace. We think that it's either going to open up for sin if we show too much grace— Or people are going to get lazy if we show too much grace. Like some of us, if we're being honest, I think internally would be like, I don't know if they should have sold all their stuff. Maybe they should have told those people they should have worked harder. I do that. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Let me think about this. Grace doesn't ask, what do you deserve? 
but instead, what do you need? Grace doesn't ask, what do you deserve? It asks, what do you need? What do they need? This is the gospel. This is Jesus. Because what we deserved was death. We deserved eternal death, separation from God. But in grace, Jesus didn't say, okay, what do they deserve? Instead, he said, what do they need? And what they needed was a savior. And that's why Jesus came down. And that's why he lived this perfect life. And that's why he went to the cross in our place because that's what grace does. It says, what do they need? It looks like this in different ways. It can look like this in a gracious act, like you see here. It can look like this in the way that we forgive sin amongst one another. Are we gracious? Are we quick to forgive? Or are we saying, what do they deserve? All that is a a distortion of the gospel and a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say, what do you deserve? It says, what do you need? And here's the thing. None of us, none of us are ever going to outdo Jesus in showing grace. Not a single one of us. So don't be fearful. Like, I think I've showed enough grace. Maybe I've showed too much grace. You're never going to outdo Jesus, so just keep going. And if you're like, yeah, but if I show grace, what if they take advantage of me? If they take advantage of the grace that you show, so be it. Your reward isn't on this earth anyway, it's in heaven. Default on grace. Default on grace. Not judgment. Default on grace. Now, some of you are saying, but what about sin? (laughs) What about sin? Should we not point out sin? No, we should. We should be honest about sin. Should we help others when they don't see the sin in their life? Absolutely, we should do that. Should we beat each other up with their sin and shame them because of their sin? No, absolutely not. That is not what it means to be grace-filled. God has not called us to adopt a marine mentality, meaning... There's nothing wrong with the Marines, let me say that. But a Marine mentality of, we're going to tear you down to build you up. If you're looking for someone to yell at you about your sin, push your sin in your face, beat you down because for some reason you think that's good for you, I, I honestly, I pray that you would not experience that here. You're not going to get that here. And instead of that, here's what I pray that you would get. I, I pray that you would get somebody that sits down with you and reminds you of who you've been made to be, that reminds you of how much God loves you, that reminds you that you're a new creation in Christ, and reminds you of how deeply you're loved. That's what I pray that you would get at redemption. I pray that we would constantly be reminding one another out of a response to grace who we are and who we've been made to be. And I pray that even as we reach those who may not be believers yet, that we would clearly communicate and show grace that God has shown us in our life as we communicate them the truth of the gospel? Are we gracious in forgiving? Are we gracious in giving our time and giving what we have? If we're going to be found guilty of anything as a church, I pray that it would be that we are too gracious. I pray that that would be, if we're going to be found guilty of something as a church, I pray that that's what it would be, that we're too loving, that we're too forgiving, that you get too many hugs here. But I pray that we would be found guilty of that, not being cold and judgmental. Because I just don't see that in Jesus' life. And I just don't see that in the gospel. There are no throwaways. I pray that if you are in here today, you don't feel lesser than anyone else. And I pray that you don't feel judgment as you come in here. And I pray that you feel welcomed here. And I pray that you would know that we love that you are here. And I pray that no one would look down at one another, but that we would be gracious to one another, understanding how much grace we've been shown. I would pray that we would understand that there's no greater or lesser. There's only forgiven, adopted children in the kingdom. And so I pray that we would embody that as a church. 
that we would be so grace-filled that that would make the gospel beautiful and non-ignorable so that people would see that change in our life, in our church, and they would say, what's going on there? How can I learn more about it? And the Holy Spirit would move and people would meet Jesus. Is that something you are interested in seeing? Is that something we actually want to see? We want to see people's lives change through the power of the Holy Spirit moving, and I really, really believe that a lot of it starts with this, how we're living out the gospel. Are we joyful, relational, grace-filled people that are painting a picture of Jesus, the picture of the real Jesus, who he really is? I'm going to brag on them a little bit. I didn't tell them that I was, and so I'll have to ask for forgiveness. But if you've been around redemption for nine months, um, this just stuck out to me doing this prep this week. You've probably met them. But if you want to know what I think this looks like to be joyful, relational, grace-filled people, they're not perfect at it. They would tell you they're not perfect at it. But I believe that they do a great job of embodying this, and that is, that's the Woolies. If you don't know the Woolies, you should meet the Woolies. And I know that Wade probably hates that I'm talking about him right now. And it's not to embarrass him, it's not to embarrass his family, but it's to show honor because I've never seen the Woolies not joyful, even though sometimes things have been tough. They open up their house every week for a life group. I've never seen them not be relational, and they're filled with so much grace. And to be honest, they're an encouragement to me, and they're an example to me, and so meet the Woolies. And thank you for being an example to us on what it means to really live this out. They also serve in different ways. It's crazy. I forgot to say this. They have five children. They're awesome. And they serve in kids' men as well. And they serve on the engagement team. And they do a life group. And Wade works 90 hours a week. It's insane. And so they embody this. Thank you. And so as the people live this out, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Let's just look at this. It says, They were praising God, and they had favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Favor. Should we have favor? favor? Here's my answer. Yes, we should have favor. We should have favor, meaning this, that if anyone doesn't like us, if anyone's angry with us, if anyone dismisses us or has something against us, it should be because of what we believe, not because we're not living out what we believe. So, you know, Jesus, he says in the Bible, like, some will hate you just as they've hated me. Here's what he doesn't say. Give them a reason to. And the people around them saw this. They saw them living in this way with one another, joyfully, relationally, filled with grace. And, and here's what happened. It says they added to their number, added to their number those who were being saved. This is a complete act of the Holy Spirit. As this group of people faithfully lived this out and proved the effect of the gospel to be true, They didn't save anyone, but as their lives made the gospel beautiful and non-ignorable, the Holy Spirit moved and people's lives were changed. And I think what sometimes keeps us from being this, what keeps us from being joyful and relational and grace-filled and really living out the effect of the gospel is this. It's busyness and forgetfulness. It's busyness and forgetfulness that we often forget. We forget everything that God has given us and so our joy fades. We forget how much God has pursued us and is continuing to pursue us in love and grace, and so we stop pursuing others. We forget just how much grace we've been shown, and so we stop showing grace. We forget. It's not that we don't have the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, and so you have everything you need to live this out, but we get busy, and we get forgetful, and things get in the way, and instead of remembering what we have, we think about what we don't have, 
we think about what we want, we think about what we think we deserve, and we get off focus, and we stop living joyfully and relationally, and we stop living grace-filled. And what we need is for the Holy Spirit to remind us and fill us as a people and as a church. This is my prayer, that the Holy Spirit would remind us of who we are as a people, saved by a great dad, as a brother laid down his life for you, and that we would be filled and overflowing with joy because of the hope that we have in us, and that we would love one another so much, and we would love these people walking on Green Lake so much, and we would love the people in our neighborhoods so much, and we would show so much grace, and we would forgive one another, and ultimately, in doing all of that, we would make the gospel of Jesus beautiful. It's only through the Holy Spirit that that can happen. None of this works without the Holy Spirit. None of this happens without the Holy Spirit. Trying to live a joyful, relational, grace-filled life without the Holy Spirit is like trying to drive a car on fumes. You may get a couple feet, but then you're going to be on the side of the road. I don't know if you notice, but people are broken. They can irritate you. Stuff's going to happen in your life, and it can rob your joy. It only happens through the Holy Spirit in us, working in us, reminding us. And I think sometimes there's this distortion of what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in our life. A lot of times I hear it said that the Holy Spirit is mainly in our life just to convict us of sin, just to show us the sin in our life. Here's what I see in the Bible. The only time I really see the word convict in the Holy Spirit is when it says that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world, those who are not yet believers, of their sin so that they will come to Jesus. I actually never see in the Bible the, the phrase, the Holy Spirit convicting believers. Here's what I think as Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come and be your helper. I think a lot of that is that the Holy Spirit is going to come, he's going to dwell within you, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to remind you of who you are. When you fall into sin, he's going to remind you that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that you don't need to live that way anymore. He's going to remind you when you are tempted not to show forgiveness, how much you've been forgiven. In your day-to-day, he's going to remind you that Jesus pursued you because he wanted a relationship with you, so you should pursue your coworker. He's going to remind you. He's reminding us who we are in Christ. And we need to pray as a people and as a church that he keeps reminding us that we become joyful because we realize that Jesus took our place on the cross for the joy set before him, that we become relational because we remember how much we've been pursued, that we become grace-filled because we're constantly thinking about how much grace we've been shown, and we think, how can we not show grace if we've been shown that much grace? And I believe that as we are faithful to live this out, as we're filled by the Holy Spirit, and as we continue to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus and his gospel as a people and as a church, and we become more desperate and become more hungry for the Holy Spirit to live and move within us and to see the gospel change others, here's what can happen. We can become expectant that the Holy Spirit is going to move. But as we live this out and as we seek God and as we ask him to save our community and as we ask him to deepen our relationships with him and as we ask him to weed out sin and as we ask him to make us more loving and relational, that if we do that in humility, if we do that in the way that these people are doing it here as they responded to the gospel, we can expect the Holy Spirit is going to move and then we get to hang on and see what happens. And that's what I'm excited to see. I want to see lives changed. I believe you do as well. Well, We pray that the Holy Spirit would do this work within us and do this work within our church. In how we live, what kind of picture of Jesus in the gospel is our life painting? Is it dull and dismissible? Or is it beautiful and non-ignorable? My prayer, church, is that we would live out what it means to be joyful, relational, and grace-filled through the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of our mission, which is enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples so that our vision 
of seeing Jesus become non-ignorable would come to fruition.